Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. I just find the opposition to the filibuster to be such an infuriating position to have because you're acknowledging that we're going to do nothing about climate change until the planet melts. If we have to wait for eight to 10 Republicans to decide to do something about climate change, the Senate is going to be underwater. Hello, and welcome to the Clan Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is Dan Pfeiffer, probably best known now for being co-host of Pod Save America, but he was, of course, communications director in the Obama White House, and he is the author of the new book, Untrumping America. And this is a great conversation to have right now, both about political strategy and the Democratic Party in this moment, but also about the broader context in which the Democratic Party is taking place and trying to figure out its way forward, which I think is often understood to be the context of Donald Trump, but in a very fundamental way that I think is not rigorously looked at or argued out well. It's actually the context of Barack Obama and what he succeeded at and what he failed at. So we dig into that pretty deeply here. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Dan Pfeiffer. Dan Pfeiffer, welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here. I want to start with something you say in the book that a lot of people are not going to like to hear, <laughs> which is that Donald Trump is a heavy favorite to win re-election. Why do you think he's likely to win re-election? Well, a couple of reasons. One, incumbents usually win. Incumbents in strong economies usually win. And it's hard to know as we sit here today in the middle of the coronavirus whether the economy will look as strong in November as it did when I wrote that. But we should bet that he will have a relatively strong economy. And one thing I think that people don't really recognize, I've seen this a lot in polling and focus groups this time, which is for a lot of voters, two terms is the default for a president. And so there is a high burden of proof on the challenger to convince the public to shift horses in mid-race. And so given all those things, and then you add on top of that just a general electoral college advantage, I would have a very different answer if we were had a national popular vote election. But given a Republican electoral college advantage, he's, we have to see him as the favorite. And to think otherwise would be to have a campaign strategy not based in reality. One of the things that on the one hand, makes you makes Donald Trump look weak, is it despite how strong the economy has been? And again, let's imagine we're having this conversation pre-coronavirus yep. for a minute yep. because things are going to change and, and that may change. But given where we've been, Donald Trump has never done as well in polling as you would have thought he would given the state of the economy, that if Barack Obama had had this economy from basically the beginning of his term, he would have been at 56 percent or something. On the other hand, something you hear when you talk to people who are doing focus groups and that I was also hearing when I was talking to somebody who runs a big organization that does a lot of canvassing and, and door knocking is that a lot of voters have ended up in this place with Trump, which is I don't like him. I don't like how he acts. But if you look around, things are pretty OK for me. The economy is doing pretty well. We're not in a major war with anybody. And so the thing that Democrats are going to have to manage is there's a lot of personal dislike of Donald Trump. But on the other hand, again, putting coronavirus aside and because we don't know where that'll go, there is a, I don't know, maybe I don't want to rock the apple cart right now. Right. 
I mean, that is ultimately the challenge. And national polling is of limited utility in understanding president elections anyway, but I think it's particularly true given Trump's approval. Because of how polarizing Trump is, obviously a topic very close to your heart, the approval ratings are dragged down by very, very low approval rating in large populist blue states. And so when you look at what Trump's approval rating in Wisconsin is, it's very close to where Obama's was at this point in 2012, which is right around 48, 49. And that is a number at which he can win. It's not a guaranteed win, but he's, you know, he's at the three-yard line. And so what Democrats, I think, have to really think about is how do you give people, create a permission structure for people who feel don't like Trump, but feel nervous about change to go your way, right? And that that is ultimately what the, our candidate's going to have to do. And whether it's Biden or Bernie, that's going to be a very different approach. But if if we just simply spend the whole election telling people how terrible Trump is, we will just be telling them things they already know. And you have to tie Trump's behavior, the things people don't like about Trump, to a specific opportunity cost in their lives or in the country. When permission structure got popularized by David Axelrod in 2008, yeah, yeah. what it meant was Barack Obama is a young African-American candidate with a funny name, without that much experience in national politics, who is running for president um, four years after being in the Chicago, I'm sorry, in the Illinois State yep. Senate. And the way that you guys thought about building permission structure was bringing in functionally graybeards to come in and say, this guy is fine, right? A Colin Powell endorsement, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. What does a permission structure look like here, um, be it Biden or Bernie, who are what are the kinds of events, people, figures, endorsements, whatever it might be, that you think would give people that license to say things might be okay right now, but I'm going to jump. Really, as we think about it, it wasn't just like graybeards in 2008. It was a whole host of things, right? Which is the 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 whole theory of our 2008 campaign where Democrats in the primary and then voters in the general wanted to make Barack Obama president, but they were hesitant for all the reasons you cited: lack of experience, questions of electability. He didn't look like any president we previously had, right? So a whole host of things, like the reason winning Iowa was the first part of our strategy was we believe that gave a whole host of voters permission to do what they wanted to do. And so here, it's the inverse, right? We think a lot of voters don't want to reelect Trump, so we have to give them permission to do that. And I think what that means is I don't think it's like endorsements per se, although if you had some sort of bipartisan endorsements, that would be helpful. I just, since Mitt Romney just recently said he would subpoena Hunter Biden. I don't <laughs> I don't suspect he's going to be on that list. But it is voters took a what I truly think is an educated risk on Trump. They knew who he was. They knew he was crass. They knew he was dishonest. They knew he might be personally corrupt, but he would shake up the system. And so you have to show that he didn't actually shake up the system. And you have to show you have to convince him to take a risk on another person. Right. And that that could be for big structural revolutionary change or that could be for a return to the quote unquote normalcy of an Obama Biden era of politics. And that's the Democratic primary voters will choose which of those they think is best. I'm not going to hold this whole conversation in in the Trump context, but I do want to talk about one other piece of this that I think is a tension in your book and in the election right now, which is Trump's single best asset is the economy, Um, just full stop. And so when I think of what a permission structure for a lot of voters who are somewhat attracted by Trump's economic successes, which we can talk about how they're a continuation of Obama air trends, but they are what they are, is you would want figures they associate with the economy to come out for the Democrat. But one thing that's happened, particularly on the left of the party, 
is a confrontational attitude to the figures who are associated with that, right? So, you know, Elizabeth Warren going to war with billionaires and um, uh, Bernie Sanders, you know, luxuriating in Lloyd Blankfein's uh, condemnation and so on. And look, I, I'm i not personally a fan of a lot of these Wall yeah. Street and hedge fund people. So emotionally, I, I enjoy it and I enjoy the Twitter fights. Mm. But when I do talk to voters, many of whom care a lot about where the stock market is or what's going on in their 401ks or, um, you know, just they watch CNBC or they worry that you would tank the economy and, and, and it would hurt them. It creates a tension between two things that I think are big in the Democratic Party right now, which is on the one hand, the need to deal with voters who don't love Trump but are nervous about change. And on the other hand, what you say is the fundamental divide in the Democratic Party, which is between restoration and transformation. Is this just about going back to where we were before Donald Trump or is this something much bigger than Donald Trump that needs structural change? And I think that where the Democratic Party is, most of the arguments are around that. But there is very little arguing done on behalf of voters who maybe don't want that much change because that very rarely reflects the most engaged primary activists, voters, et cetera. Right. I'd be curious to hear you talk a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, there, you're, there is no doubt that there is this tension that the tension you've raised has been throughout this primary. And when you get further away from the activist class, which is basically what the difference between Iowa, New Hampshire, the Nevada caucus, and then South Carolina Super Tuesday, the further you get away from the hyper-engaged activist class, you get more of a nostalgia for sort of a rest, uh, restoration as opposed to a re revolution. Now, I think there is some context to that, which is Biden certainly represents a return to, at bare minimum, Obama-era normalcy, right? Like, the we knew things were okay back, th like from the perspective of a Democratic voter. Things were, even if they weren't, we didn't get everything we wanted. The country felt safe and secure, and that we had decent, good people in the White House, and this would be a return to that. And it seems like a safer bet. It's hard, I think, you know, and th this is perhaps a broader conversation, but it's the Democratic Party is in a weird place because we've been dominated by three figures for more than a decade now. Really, even if you go back that, we've now been we've dominated for several decades by the Clintons, Obama, and now Trump. Right. Trump is the figure that blocks out the sun. And so everything that anything that is a discussion about where the party should go is filtered around how that helps us beat Trump. And that sort of, I think, limits the nature of that discussion in a way, because there is this question around everything is like Elizabeth Warren's policies are the most popular in the party by far. But the benefit of those policies is not discussed in terms of how they help the economy or how they would help build a larger democratic coalition over the long term. It's the context of how will they be interpreted by a hypothetical group of white men in Wisconsin. And I think that stands over it. Now, that is not necessarily how you the only way in which you win an election. But yeah, I think you're right that 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 tension said there in my like in my book. And the reason I wrote the book is I believe very strongly that Democrats have been distracted by Trump from the forces that gave us Trump. And that when Trump is gone, whether that is at the end of this year or four years later, um, if we don't deal with the forces that led to Trump, we're just going to end up with a smarter Trump. And that's what scares me. And yet you can see the tension of that just in the book's title, yeah. which is Untrumping America. Yes. Yeah, that's right. I and, mean, that is the incentive system right there, right? One reason everybody focuses on Trump uh, is like that's where the attention yeah. is, the curiosity goes. I mean, if I had named my book like 
how Donald Trump polarized America. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that's, that's not right. what the book is. But um, and so I, I do think one of the the difficulties here is that all the Democrats are operating in this incentive structure, where, as you say, where a lot of the Democratic voters are is the first question is, what do you do about Donald Trump? And then everything beneath that is a subordinate question. Yeah. And I, I certainly understand that. I wrote actually wrote the book that way in the sense that I structured the book mm-hmm. to try to first section was to sort of disabuse Democrats that Republicans were going to have an epiphany and that Donald Trump was an aberration. Um, and then the second part was how you beat Trump, because I think that is this looming question over everything. And I think it's important to think about that question in the context of what comes next and not just like what's the shortcut to doing it now. And that's why I think it's important. That's why I think it's important and unfortunate that the two candidates who remain in this uh, in this primary are the ones who I think are have least grappled with the political forces that led to Trump. I want to put a pin in that. That's okay. a provocative statement. We're going yes. to come back to it. I want to try a theory out on okay. you, just so. To situate us in time for listeners, we're talking a couple days after Super Tuesday is going to come out after another batch of primaries. So I'm not going to locate us too too much in this moment. But I think that Joe Biden's win on Super Tuesday requires some rethinking on the part of the pundit class. Oh, for sure. And in a way that I think isn't really happening because nobody's pressing it. Uh, You know, every time Bernie Sanders won, there's like this, everybody is wrong about socialism in America. Then Joe Biden does something that I would have told you was impossible, which is that he wins a high turnout primary. Winning a low turnout primary would not have surprised me. Winning a mid turnout primary would not have surprised me. For there to be a giant turnout and Joe Biden wins the new entrance into the Democratic primary, that was supposed to be what Bernie Sanders did. Eric Levitz at New York Magazine mm-hmm. had this very cheekly written yes, thing about well how done, yes. what Bernie Sanders wanted to happen happened. It just happened for Joe Biden. And one of the things it makes me think about is a problem among pundits is that we are not like most people. We're unbelievably politically engaged, unbelievably politically involved. We have very deep internal consistent ideologies. We're very issue oriented. I mean, not everyone and there are plenty of bad pundits, but but I think in general, this is a way that that folks who do this professionally differ systematically. And So when you hear people's theories of what will turn out voters, it almost always reflects that. It's almost always if you had a candidate who is more straightforward in their ideology, less compromised, more exciting to me, they would turn people out. Um, But what Joe Biden then does is be muddled in his ideology, muddled oftentimes just in his straightforward speech, um, sort of runs basically as generic Democrat, runs in a way that annoys a lot of pundits, including me, right, saying that, you know, Republicans will have an epiphany and he's going to be able to get things done. And then he gets this big turnout. And I, I think we need to, like, at least ask the question of whether or not there is an attraction among people who get really into politics, transformational change. If you didn't think things are really wrong, you probably wouldn't spend all your time doing politics professionally. But for a lot of voters, not everybody, a lot of people are in very dire straits, but a lot of voters, and this goes way, way back in American political history, get scared by transformational change. Even if they could use a lot of help, um, they're worried of lo- about losing what they have. And I, I wonder how much what is happening with Joe Biden represents something that needs to be taken a little bit more seriously, which is a way in which the electorate is often systematically misunderstood 
by partisans who control a lot of primaries and control a lot of things going on, but are, are, are different in important ways in terms of what motivates them in politics from what motivates people who are a lot less attached to the political system. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. And you guys at Vox have this very interesting article about the Elizabeth Warren bubble, which is if you like literally everyone, almost everyone I know in my life, both people in politics and people who live here in California outside of politics were Elizabeth Warren voters. Like if if I had just I had never seen a poll and I just did it anecdotally, I would think Elizabeth Warren would have gotten 80 percent of the vote. Right. And that is true of Pot Save America listeners. You go to any show and there we did a show in L.A. Uh, right after Super Tuesday. And even though Elizabeth Warren was getting out of the race 24 hours later and everyone sort of understood that that was likely outcome, everyone showed up in their Warren shirts. And if you live in a political bubble that is going to impact your just how you view, you know, sort of how you interpret events. So I think a couple of things on this. One, I remember listening to Greg Schultz, who was Biden's campaign manager on David Pluff's podcast before uh, the Iowa caucus. And, and Pluff had all of the campaign managers of the leading can of the top five candidates or so on to sort of give their pre-Iowa take. And it was a real interesting window into the campaign. And Greg Schultz said two things that I took note of in there. One was that they would be viable in 95% of precincts. That turned out to be quite wrong and offered some very alarming uh, alarming window into their view, their data in analytics. Second thing he said is- How wrong was it? Quite wrong. Like, I don't know what the exact numbers were, but he missed viability in a large portion of districts, uh, precincts. And the, the other thing he said was, don't be so sure that a high turnout caucus benefited Bernie Sanders, not someone else. Now, he he implied that someone else would be Biden, but his basic point was Bernie had already gotten the people he was going to get to turn out for him in 2016. And there and people who did not turn out in 2016 were not necessarily going to be Bernie caucus goers. And I thought that was very interesting. And then we didn't get to test it because it ended up being a low turnout caucus and we tied or however you want to describe it. Bernie got the most votes. Pete got the most delegates. And... It, what I think all of these discussions missed was that the group of people who have been sort of powering a lot of democratic politics since 2016 are people who got involved in the process after 2016, right? These are the people who, you know, you saw that Biden won voters on Super Tuesday who did not vote in the 2016 mm -hmm. primary. And so these are people who have been motivated by Trump's election and who maybe thought, I could sit on the side, like politics was not something I had to engage in on a daily basis. And now I'm not just, I'm not, I'm voting in primaries. And Biden won those people. And I think it shows that a lot of the people you have to bring into the process are not ideological in the same way. And I think we we confuse, I've been using, as I've been out talking to people, something that is sort of influenced by your book, which is that everyone in politics thinks the presidential elections are about ideology and policy, and they're about identity and personality. And I think Pundits have to do a better job of understanding that fact that voters are just simply not. This is something we've been arguing about in Obama land with people for a decade now, which is that voters are not ideological in the same way that reporters and pundits think they are. Like it has never been the Bernie, the moderate lane and the progressive lane. It has become the Bernie lane and the non-Bernie lane, which is now the Bernie and the Biden lane. But Warren's voters were not Bernie voters necessarily. Some of them were. But some of Biden's voters are also Bernie voters. And if you look at this entirely through the frame of ideology, then I think you're going to miss how voters look at it. Yeah, I, mean, Trump I think the, Trump's election is the example of that. 
I think a lot more of those lanes than people gave credit for was simply it's a pro-system and an anti-system lane. It's not literally about Medicare for yeah. all. It's about the package of intuitions and gestures that lead to one vision of politics versus another, right? I get frustrated by Bernie Sanders people who say that Bernie is the only candidate or Medicare for all candidates are the only candidates who want people to be able to go to the doctor and afford it. Yeah, it's murder because if you don't support Medicare It's murder if you don't. And by the way, as somebody who got in a lot of heat mm. for saying that Joe Lieberman was going to cause the deaths of a lot of people <laughs> by trying to tank um, the Affordable Care Act at the end, I do want to make the, the distinction that I think it's reasonable to talk about health care in terms of lives and, yeah, of and, and lives yeah. lost. But there's a very big difference between a tactical disagreement on how will you actually pass a healthcare expansion and opposition to healthcare expansions. And the difference between the Bernie Sanders people and say the Joe Biden people on this is that the Joe Biden people think you will fail with Medicare for all and you will lose like they did in 1994 and get nothing and that his approach is going to get you get something done. And the Bernie Sanders people think that You'll succeed with Medicare for all. It will inspire people, turn them out, and and that people's understanding of the constraints on the system are wrong. But that's a, a, a debate being had poorly, and it's a debate fundamentally about the system itself and how it works. Can you blow it up by attacking it frontally, or do you have to take its constraints as relatively settled and work within them? And I think that generates a lot more of the disagreement in politics than, than than we like to admit. That's why I'm so frustrated by a lot of policy debates that are actually political strategy debates in disguise. Yeah. Like the Medicare for All debate is a political strategy debate disguised as a debate about healthcare policy. I mean, it's really about what you think of in terms of the American people accepting tax increases, how scared they'll be if you take away their health insurance. But that is about political constraints. It isn't about what is the ideal way to structure policy, but they disguise themselves that way. Uh, in a way that I think confuses what's really going on. Like, all these things are ultimately theories of change, right? How do you actually get things done? And not to be, like, explicitly provocative, but both Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden have deeply flawed theories of change. Like, grassroots mobilization, absent the elimination of the filibuster, like, you're not going to motivate Republican senators to do the right thing, simply through grassroots mobilization in a short term. And you are not going to pass Medicare for all, Medicare for some, literally Medicare for one additional person in America, if you were depending upon eight to 10 Republican senators to do it, to agree with mm-hmm. you. And so like that, like that has been the problem with this debate from the very beginning. And I remember interviewing Pete Buttigieg early on before when I thought I'd drawn the short straw to get the candidate who was going nowhere in the, uh, we had a rotating, we like, we, we rotate me, Favreau and Tommy would go and take turns. Whichever presidential candidate was coming through the office, we would do it. So Favreau got Gillibrand, who was like, seemed like a real serious candidate there. Then Tommy got Warren, and then I got Pete Buttigieg, and I was like, damn it. <laughs> like, but I asked him about Medicare for all and public option. He had been, and I said to him, you know, why public option? And he said, I think that's the best way to start. And I said, well, what would you say to the Bernie Sanders people who say that if you start in the middle, you're going to end up to the right. And if you start for the left, you'll end up in the middle. And he he said, well, that's just a question of legislative strategy. And if that was the best way to get it done, I'd start with Medicare for all, which sort of laid bare the whole conversation, which is the substance in and of itself, not the most important thing. It's how you get it done. And he was very ambivalent on both. Because, that I don't think that's a bad thing either, because if you were to get a public option, 
That would be a gigantic, massive expansion of healthcare. I don't think being serious about process is a bad thing. Yeah. I actually think one of the – I had Pete Buttigieg in here, and we had a great interview very early in his campaign. And what was so striking to me about him then was he was really emphasizing procedural change. And I, and I said to him, like, would you actually make the decision that candidates and presidents tend to not make, which is – to expend your political capital on changing things like the filibuster yeah. first, yeah. as opposed to, you know, just doing what you could to get an immediate benefit to, to, to people, because if you do that, you never get the procedural changes. And, and he was very insistent that he would. And uh, to be honest, I was pretty disappointed by where his campaign went from then. I felt uh, at the beginning he was running as somebody who had seen the way the process broke down under Obama, had learned those lessons and like was front-loading that you have to change them to make America governable for the next 50 years. And then whether it was polling or consultants or whatever happened, it just became like a like a candidacy a little bit from the 1990s where you were just trying to signal that you were moderate. But there was something importantly radical in his campaign right there at the beginning, which was a synthesis that, as you say, I think that Bernie and Biden both miss in their own ways. Bernie's critique of Obama is so ideological that I that I think he and a lot of his supporters believe if you just had a more ideologically pure president – that the mixture of being uh, of not compromising yourself down and of having an agenda that you believe is more motivating because it isn't compromised down would get you around the traps that ensnared Obama. And I think Joe Biden has no real theory of how to fix what stopped Obama's like the back half of his presidency from being more successful. And there's just a way in which both of them, to me, are a little trapped in like a pre-Obama debate. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And the other thing about the Buttigieg thing is I was completely struck by, as someone who has for a very long time, you know, going back to like 2013, been a big advocate for getting rid of the filibuster and very intrigued by changing the composition of the Supreme Court and things like that, and like trying to get rid of these structural impediments to progressive political power in this country. Well, so when Pete Buttigieg said that, I, that was a eye-opening thing and made me pay attention to someone who I had known a little bit. I'd interviewed him back when he was running for DNC chair and was impressed by, but didn't take his presidential campaign super seriously at the beginning. But I was like, oh, that like that's a legitimate contribution to the debate. Mm -hmm. And he did it in the context of generational change where some of my generation is going to have to deal with the consequences of inaction on things like climate change, right? And I thought that was very powerful. I do think his presidential campaign in some ways, like you say the 90s, I say 2000. And five. I think that's probably right. That, that's more correct than the yeah, like, so like 2005 some, is correct. It's sort of the uh, the pre, it's a pre Obama critique of the Democratic Party and politics where the path to the middle was basically I mean, in something from my old experience where like the, the two people who we think could best win the 2008 Democratic election, the 2008 presidential election are Mark Warner and Evan Bayh because they're moderate white guys from, you know, the South and the Midwest, right? And that's mm -hmm. just the, that's a pre-Obama theory of politics. But I, like, I wish we had more conversation in presidential campaigns. It was more explicit about theory of change. Like when we interviewed all the candidates, we tried to make the first question, one of the first questions to each candidate be, what bill would you put forward first? Because prioritization is yep. incredibly important because just presuming you have a Congress that will pass what you want or have a have a hearing in, your first bill is going to have a better chance than your second bill, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, and I think Bernie Sanders said Medicare for all. Uh, Kirsten Gillibrand might have said immigration reform, but Elizabeth Warren said her anti-corruption bill. And like that was a theory of change, whether that the history of these things, if you pass an anti-corruption bill in January of 2021, it's going to kick in and 21, 22, 23. But the theory was, if you clean up the system, you can do all the other things. And 
Pete Buttigieg sort of started there with democratic reform. And I will say, and I will say in his defense, I interviewed him the Thursday before the New Hampshire primary when he was talking to literally every person in media. And I asked him, would you commit to still doing filibuster reform and changing the Supreme Court? And he unequivocally said yes. And he brought it up in the South. I mean, yeah. he he tried to draft in with Elizabeth Warren yeah. to create a filibuster argument at the South Carolina debate. Yeah. And Bernie and Biden just like <laughs> dismissed it and yeah. moved on. So it's not that he abandoned it, yeah. it's just that he stopped emphasizing yeah. it. But but I don't want to postmortem yeah. uh, Buttigieg for yeah. too much here. I do want to talk about something that just came up around Obama, yeah. which is I think over this conversation and frankly over politics mm-hmm. in general is – the tensions of the Obama record. And what I think of is sort of the paradox of Barack Obama, which is he ran for president promising to change the system and get all these things done. And he got, judged by the standards of other presidents, a tremendous amount done, but at the cost of entrenching and working within a lot of what was the problem in the system. And and that to me is the part of his legacy the Democrats have had a lot of trouble managing, that a lot of his appeal in 08 was that he was going to make politics something you could like better. And instead, it just kept getting worse in sort of the same ways. And I'm curious how you think about that and how you think about what lessons need to be learned from that. Well, I think I think about this all the time. And I think about how we viewed politics in 08. And I think we, we believed incorrectly that Bush and Clinton were uniquely polarizing figures that had to do with Bush's decision to go to the Iraq war and Clinton's personal conduct. And those were both things Clinton actually did and things he was accused of doing that made politics worse than it had to be and that a different person could solve that problem and someone with a broader appeal. And there were reasons throughout that 2008 campaign to believe that was possible. Obama was being endorsed by a lot of Republicans and a lot of Republican voters. Like one of our advantages in the Iowa caucus is that you is that it's an open caucus and Republicans could a lot of them came and registered so they could caucus for Obama. You know, and you, it was just like even give you an example that seems that is seems absurd now, but it's like Mark McKinnon, who was Bush's best ad maker, sat out the 2008 election because he didn't want to have to make negative ads against Obama. Like there was this feeling that it could be different. And what I think we misunderstood was the following things. One, what you write about, which is the inexorable path of increased polarization in America, that that had something that had nothing to do, nothing specifically to do with Bush and Clinton and more to do with where the country was going. I think we did not necessarily anticipate how social media would catalyze that process in a way. Certainly when we started that campaign, we were not anticipating the starting to govern it during an absolute financial crisis that layered on top of rapid demographic, technological, and cultural change in America. Um, so we put all those things together, and that creates quite a, a challenging stew. So taking all those lessons, right? And so what, what did we learn from that, which is that even if you can convince the country, the majority of the country to support your agenda, which Obama had great success in doing, right? Like you look at where immigration reform was in 2008, and where it was when he left, you think about just to give you a sense of how the message, like how the politics of taxes have changed. Every Democrat before Obama lost the tax question on the exit polls. Who would you trust more on taxes? And Obama won that by taking that on. And that has been actually Democrats' best argument is that Republicans want to give tax cuts to, to the wealthy. 
and have not been afraid of the being accused of being tax raisers, which was sort of Ronald Reagan's superpower that he le- that he hit every Democrat with. And so we, but we recognize that that moving the country did not move Republicans, and that we needed to better understand the incentive structures that drove Republican political Republican elected officials' political decisions. And there's a whole host of things that contribute to that. One is is polarization, ideological and geographic. One is gerrymandering, particularly in the House, where Republicans were much more afraid of a a right-wing primary challenge than a challenge from the middle in a general. And the overturning of Citizens United, which made it even harder for a Republican, is even if you had the courage to take a politically risky decision with the voters for compromise, if you knew that the Koch brothers or whoever could put a million dollars in your primary opponent's campaign account or put it or run out a million dollars of ads, that made it harder. But you still like you look at Biden's success in this, you look at the, some of the success that Pete Buttigieg has, there's still an appealing message of unity. But how do you do that message of unity that it that is fits somewhere between naivete and nihilism, right? And how you have to think about it is can you say that we're going to unite the country to take on the entrenched power in the entrenched Republican power in Washington that is fighting against the the things the majority of American people care about. Can you unite the party without being without saying that your path for unity is to work with Mitch McConnell? And I think that is going to be the test. And it's going to be, I think, a particularly like for either Biden or Bernie. Like Bernie, unity has never been a message that he has has seen most comfortable delivering. It's never been sort of the tip of the spear. And Biden is never. I don't think he's ever been willing to be realistic or accurate about who the Republicans are. I did a profile of Joe Biden a couple months back. It's called Joe Biden will never give up on the system, or maybe Joe Biden will never give up on the Senate. People can find it if they search it. And that was all about why Biden, given his particular history in the Senate, which is it is it has been the formative institution yeah. for him as an adult. He came in very young at a time of incredible tragedy. And if you just read his memoirs, if you mm-hmm. if you listen to him closely, like what the Senate has meant to him, it's his relationship with it is not like that of other politicians. Right. But the reason I bring this up is to say, I think I am basically as far out as you can get in terms of my belief that the frontal thing to do in American politics is reform the system and in particular reform the Senate. And I've been arguing this for years and years and years and years. But something I take is seriously that I think you can frame this as a Joe Biden thing if you wanted, but let's call it also a Barack Obama thing, is that my view on this substantively and the politics of it may actually point in different directions. So I remember hearing Barack Obama because I used to mm-hmm. When he was president and I would be in as a reporter yeah. with him, I yeah. had some of these arguments with yeah. him. And I remember hearing him say, I don't remember if it was at one of these, when there was one of these debates about how much you're going to get out of trying to compromise with Republicans. Yeah. He said, I think that it is easier for the American people to see that the Republicans are forming a fist if they see me extending my hand. And I, I've that's always stuck yeah. with me. It was some line like that. And – what do you think about the argument that while it might be Dan Pfeiffer mm. and Ezra Klein may be right, that you got to get rid of the filibuster and that there's not going to be compromise, that what voters want to hear is you're going to try. In some ways, I think Joe Biden's absolute best line right now, because it it's his line that absorbs more of the reality of the situation, is nobody knows better than me. Nobody has better yeah, reason than right. me to be angry at the Republicans right now, and I'm still going to try and work with them. And – 
maybe I, d- I don't believe it is the case that Joe Biden secretly is going to run a sort of like an up the up the left partisan presidency and say this. But is the optimal strategy to believe in compromise publicly and talk about compromise and normalcy publicly and recognize the reality of polarization privately and govern from that understanding? Yeah, I, I think that is the Obama presidency of the second term. If we can find a place to work together, we will work together. But if we won't, then I'm going to do everything I can with my executive power to accomplish it or I'm going to push forward. And ultimately, like, we're going to have this debate in this primary again and again and again about whether Obama tried too hard to compromise with Republicans. And it's been mythologized in a lot of ways that all Obama ever wanted to do was compromise with Republicans. And so there's like sort of two eras of this, right? And what Obama said to you about open hand and fist, I think is that is true to what he believes. I also think he's right about the politics. And you saw it play out whenever we would have a massive confrontation with Republicans because Obama would always come out ahead because people thought he tried to work with them and then they walked away. And there is real political benefit in that. And and he, I'm always used to say something I think is, uh, I talk about in the book a little bit as relates to things. Whenever you're trying to do something that's, um, that may be impossible, he would say it's better to get caught trying. And I think that is true of bipartisanship too. Now, you have to know when to step away from the table. But like the, we're going to have this conversation about Obama and Social Security cuts and chain CPI and what happened in the summer of 2011. And I think in hindsight, we were overly optimistic about John Boehner's ability to deliver a deal. In hindsight, we would not have put reforms to chain CPI, which is a social security cut, into the deal. But ultimately, what I think people forget about that was we were in a world where the economy was massively struggling. The American people were really hurting. The Republicans were adamantly opposed to any sort of fiscal stimulus that would help people's lives. And he was trying to trade long-term fiscal cuts for short-term stimulus. Because what was going to be on the table, there was potentially a expansion of the payroll tax cut. There were a whole bunch of ideas that our people were working on. And I think you have to try for those things, right? If our next Democratic president is living in a world of a Republican Senate and House, and if they want to get anything done, they're going to have to try to find the best deal they can that does not violate their principles, right? Knowing you're going to have to swallow things you don't want. And, that's, and that is very hard. And the consequences for even trying in this sort of political media age are very challenging. I want to talk about some other critiques here. So one, I think, more interesting left-wing critique of Obama is that he had this big grassroots movement in 2008. And when he got into office, the way they structured it organizationally and then the way they did or didn't deploy it effectively amounted to shuttering it. And I remember talking to people in the White House during this and hearing about the tensions, which I think are underplayed in this debate, between what will happen if you try to direct all of your supporters to go after a Joe Lieberman, a Ben Nelson? Will that bring them to you or will that repel them against you? Um, But I'd like you to talk a bit about that debate because I think this question of did Obama simply fail as organizer in chief and if somebody went and made the opposite set of decisions, he could succeed is a very animating one right now among Democrats, but it's not a debate that is had very well. So the history of this is at the end of the 2008 election, we talked to our volunteers. We did this big survey. And the question was, what do they want to do now that Obama's president? And what is, I think, important, like the context of this is, is a lot of Obama's volunteers were people who had gotten into politics for the first time. They were actually skeptical of traditional Democratic 
entities like the DNC, not unlike many of Sanders' supporters. And so we had this debate, like, do we put them at the DNC? Do we run a field organization on the DNC? Our, our, our supporters, our volunteers did not want to do that. And then could, the, because they were Obama supporters, not necessarily traditional Democrats. And so we created a organizing for action, I think it was called at the time. It said, there've been several versions of OFA. I think it was organizing for action and organizing for America. And it was housed at the DNC because you needed a place to put it and you had to have funding mechanisms for it. But it existed and it kept our, and we had activities for our volunteers and the local organization stayed, stayed engaged. And was very active in the effort to pass Obamacare. But there is this tension between— It was overwhelmed by the Tea Party. Yeah. I, I mean, overwhelmed in political narrative, not necessarily in organizing. Like, they were out there. They were doing events. So a couple of things about this. One is I went I went to one of those Senate caucus luncheons as, an, as a White House official to brief them on— the efforts to pass Obamacare is going to do the messaging strategy. This was at some point, I think, post Scott Brown. And I do my little spiel. I got a PowerPoint, and I think it's me and Axelrod. And the first question is Bill Nelson, senator from Florida. And he does not care about the message. He does not care about the polling we have just rolled out. He What he wants to do is tell me that a bunch of OFA Obama organizers protested his office because he was not being he was not sufficiently for Obamacare. And he started yelling at us. And then all the other senators started yelling at us. And it's like, why aren't you in the Republicans' offices? Which they were. But like in no one in no Obama White House official had said, hey, local Tallahassee OFA organization, go protest Bill Nelson. They had, this is decentralized organizing. So they did it on their own. So like that was one challenge. Like, yeah, I think it is very, I think if Bernie said, but I want to hold on that yeah. challenge for a minute because there's a way of understanding that not as a challenge, but a success. I think if a Sanders person were sitting here, what they would say <laughs> is the problem with the Obama administration is when Dan Pfeiffer mm. and Pete Rouse and whoever <laughs> heard Bill Nelson whining, they folded when what you should have done is like the Tallahassee chapter should have been directed to make Bill Nelson's life miserable until he was more supportive, but much more to the point, Joe Lieberman's life miserable, Ben Nelson's life miserable. And you hear Bernie say versions of this. He got asked, I think, I want to say it was on CNN, about what are you going to do with Mitch McConnell? And he said, well, Medicare for All is popular, and I'm going to send my people into Kentucky because Kentuckians need Medicare for All too. And like, they're going to change the political ecosystem in which even a Mitch McConnell is operating. And so like that's the that's the thing I want to hear you yeah. respond to. Like, can you can you move senators, including friendly ones, through fear as opposed to through like good personal relationships? I, I don't know the answer to that in terms of friendly senators, right? And I think it's gonna be different in every place because everyone's gonna have a different political calculus. Maybe it could work on a Bill Nelson because he is in a purple state, right? But can if you send a bunch of organizers to Nebraska. Or, or, or from, now to Joe Manchin. To in Joe West Manchin, Virginia. right? Like some Joe Manchin is going to re- need fifteen to twenty percent of people who voted for Trump to vote for him, mm-hmm. and so that calculus exists. And I don't know if that will work. And if Bernie wants to try that, he should. I think the I'm, I'm skeptical it'll work. It could possibly let me put it this way: it could possibly work on a Democrat. It is not going to work on a Republican in the short term, and that was the lesson. That we took. So, at, so the history of this is we started this organization that was primarily that 
was our volunteer organization was going to help us pass legislation. I think it was it helped like after everyone was sort of caught off guard by the Tea Party town halls into in that summer, it was the OFA organization who was going to all the other town halls for Democrats every time forward until we actually passed the bill eight months later or whatever it was. And I think was provided support for Democrats who do wanted to do the right thing and was not successful in pressuring Republicans to do the right thing. But that's because of all the other problems of polarization and everything else. But also these people who stayed involved and stayed trained then went and were volunteers and field organizers for 2010 Senate and House candidates and then became organizers for Obama's 2012 campaign. So after 2012, we created the next generation of OFA. And in that, ver- this is where I think the mistake the, the mistake was made is that this um, we believe that we could then at that point have more success pressuring Republicans to help enact Obama's agenda post-2012. And the lesson from that is the way to get progressive things out of Republican states is to elect Democrats in those states, not pressure the Republicans in office to do those things. And so what we could have done differently or should have done differently was taken our people and Obama's ability to raise money and use it to build sustainable bottom-up progressive power in those states as opposed to, so not a legislative strategy, a long-term electoral strategy. A bunch of angry Democrats in a very Republican district is not gonna change the opinion of someone who doesn't need the votes of those Democrats. So you're going to have to change the political calculus in that district to have impact. And so that's where I think Bernie Sanders' mobilization legislative strategy, I think, runs into the reality of American politics in this day and age. So you say in the book that the decision that haunts you from the Obama administration is not to push the Employee Free Choice Act over the finish line. Talk a bit about that. People always ask, like, just because people are who people are, they never ask you what's your favorite thing you accomplished. They always ask what's, what's, what's the least favorite thing you didn't accomplish. And most people that I work with would say climate change, immigration reform, gun control, which are all completely legitimate answers. I have questions about whether the Democratic Senate of 2009 could pass any of those things. But th- the reason that the Employee Free Choice Act haunts me, which is otherwise known as card check, it's a law that would make it much easier for unions to organize work sites is it bespeaks a larger problem in the Democratic Party, which is we do not think strategically enough about political power. We do not think strategically enough about how we build up members of our coalition. How do we ensure we have power of the long run? How do we accumulate power? We're almost uncomfortable with political power. And even that, like the helping strengthen labor unions is put aside as if they had no role in elections. That would be the right thing to do. One of the causes of economic inequality in this country is the diminishing power of unions. You can look at it at a macro level, you can look at a micro level on a state like Wisconsin. But also is that the labor unions are an important part of of the Democratic Party coalition. And we we have allowed the Republicans to gut them. And we had an opportunity when we had the political power to do to do something, and we didn't do it. And this is not just Obama. This is the this is a Congress that was exhausted from the Affordable Care Act, and, all and the a other number fronts. of Democratic senators came out against. Yes, and in large part because the Chamber of Commerce said they were yep. going to spend millions and millions of dollars against anyone who did. And this, by the way, it happened in the seventies too under Carter. Yeah. They there was a huge Democratic yeah. majority. There was an effort to liberalize yeah. um, labor laws, yeah. and it failed. And like this is, I think, where the attacks that Democrats are compromised by corporate power and money really, really gain force. Yeah, and 
We ultimately didn't do it. I would note the Chamber of Commerce still spent millions of dollars to defeat all those Democrats and succeeded in many cases. And I contrasted in the book to the way the Republicans deal with the NRA, which is when I was in the Senate, I was working for Tom Daschle at the time in the early 2000s. There was this bill that we've talked about a lot in this campaign to protect gun manufacturers from legal liability. And the reason the NRA wanted this bill so much is that they were afraid that the NRA and the gun manufacturers would go the way of the tobacco companies, that even if they had a lock on Congress through political power and lobbying and campaign contributions, they would lose in the courts. And the Republicans understood that the NRA and gun owners were an important part of their political coalition. So they took what a very unpopular, theoretically unpopular and morally questionable decision, but they did it because it was good for, they understood that they could not let one of their coalition partners be diminished. And it's just, it goes to the fundamental difference between Democrats and Republicans over many, many years is Republicans understand the acquisition, maintenance, and accumulation of political power. And Democrats are deeply uncomfortable with that. And I think that is a huge problem. And another example of that is why Democrats did not make D.C. a state in 2009, 2010, when we had the opportunity to do so. And it's be, like it wasn't, and I talk about in the book, it wasn't even a discussion. Like, I don't even remember a meeting where anyone talked about it that did not involve Eleanor, Eleanor Holmes Norton, the D.C. representative, telling us to do it. And it's like, every basically, it was Obama's position. I don't know whether it could have gotten in 60 votes because you, you're dealing with Joe Lieberman and Ben Nelson and these other difficult figures within the party, but it wasn't even discussed. And I think in part because it seemed to us like to give the people of D.C. who should be a state political power in knowing that that would give us two Democratic senators, given the political leanings of the district, would somehow feel like dirty pool and we'd be attacked for it. And we were like rigging politics. Right? It's better to disenfranchise the people of D.C. Yeah. and Puerto Rico than to possibly be seen yeah. getting more political power because they freely vote for Democratic. Right. Can- it's, it's an insane position when you speak yes. it aloud. And then you think about what Mitch McConnell would do in 2017 if D.C. voted like Utah. He would have made D.C. a state in two seconds. Could have make it easier to repeal the ACA and pass his tax cuts and get more judges. And we think differently. And I don't think Democrats should should become like the inverse of McConnell. But there are lessons to be learned about how you use the political power you have to think strategically about having more political power because you cannot pass progressive policies without political power. So I've been working on struggling with an essay forever, um, and it keeps getting shunted off. <laughs> but it's very related to, to what you write about these issues in your book, which is that I think the problem here is that Democrats, for all their rhetoric and for what their name even actually is, have lost sight of democracy as an actual value. They'll talk about it, and but they talk about it primarily in a thin and defensive way. They care a lot about voting rights laws passed um, that would disenfranchise Democratic constituencies. They care about the gutting of the Voting Rights Act at the Supreme Court level. Um, they care about things that are happening in North Carolina and gerrymandering. They care about offensive acts the Republican Party is doing to disenfranchise people to arrogate power to itself. But there is not a similar connection to democracy that there is to, say, egalitarianism or, um, you know, redistribution or alleviating the suffering of, of the poor 
that frees Democrats to think proactively about what to do with it. And if you did have a genuine democracy agenda, if you were committed to democracy as an ideal, it would, I think, help you make decisions between what is the difference between making D.C. and Puerto Rico states and breaking California into eight states so you get 16 senators out of it, which legally you could do. And similarly, I think court packing is a more difficult question given Merrick Garland and other things. But one of my frustrations is that people just seem to take people, and I mean here primarily Democrats, although I wish this were true for everybody, but but they're the, they're the closest to, to having a reasonable position on this have just lost the idea that democracy is something worth fighting for and worth taking some hits for. They want to defend what they have, but the idea of actually expanding it doesn't seem to move people um, off the couch or move up the democratic priority list in the way you might think it would. I mean, this what you just said is exactly why I wrote the book. You are right that we get very upset and we will fight back when Republicans take democratic power away from people, but we don't think strategically about the limits of democracy within the current system. And ultimately, what this, I think, truly comes down to is that our system, both a combination of decisions the founders made, the Senate, the Electoral College, plus sort of ruthless exploitation of the system by Mitch McConnell, the Koch brothers, et cetera, has put us in a world where a progressive, growing, diverse majority is going to be governed for decades on end by a conservative, shrinking white minority. And that means, like, one, I think that tests the actual strength of our economy, of our country, period. Like, is that, e- that even a sustainable way for – historically, that suggests that's not a very good way to run a, run a country over the long term. Second, everything we talk about in this primary is whistling past the graveyard if you don't deal with that problem. The Democrats are always focused on what. We're not focused on how. And if you don't take those things on very aggressively – that it's like not just simply undoing voter ID. It's like what it, or undoing voter suppression. What is what is the largest form of voter expansion you can possibly do to make it as easy and convenient for as many eligible voters as possible? And to think creatively about what the pool of eligible voters is. And you are seeing some progress with this on the voter side, with the real efforts to re-enfranchise recently incarcerated mm-hmm. people like that. Like that is something. The idea that someone would run for governor of Kentucky as a Democrat and have reenfranchisement in their platform and win is a very positive sign. So there is progress. But and this is where I think Trump is problematic, because it's like if you can just get rid of Trump, things would be fine. But what I try to tell people is that Trump didn't break the democracy. The broken democracy gave us Trump. And and quite literally. Yeah. I mean, it's like he got three million fewer votes. The you know, he won Wisconsin with fewer votes than Mitt Romney got when he lost by seven points. Like, if you can't look at that, and if Trump if Trump wins or loses, he's he very likely lose the popular vote by more than he did in 2016. It's very possible. And it may be that if we don't address some of these things through voter expansion and, you know, trying to tackle Electoral College, which is harder, that every Republican president ever elected in our future will get fewer votes But this is why – I want to say why I say the Democratic Party on this because something I'm going to hear immediately when this podcast goes up, if I don't say this, is from House Democrats who will note that the first thing they did in 2018 was they built H.R. 1, which was a big pro-democracy bill, which is not like everything I would put in the bill. But it's a a strong bill. It's a very strong bill. It's a big step forward for the Democratic Party to make that their their first piece of legislation. The issue is that if Senate Democrats – do not believe expanding democracy is more important than preserving the filibuster, 
then HR1 has absolutely zero chance of passage. And I think people need to really appreciate this. There is no way, like zero, HR1 passes under the current system. You cannot do it through budget reconciliation. So the question for the Democratic Party, quite genuinely, is, is democracy, both majoritarian democracy in the Senate, right, the idea that passing things with 51 votes is actually the right way to run the Senate, but is it worth doing so you can enfranchise people, so you can make sure that we actually have a democracy in this country? And right now, the answer of almost every Democratic senator, and by the way, that includes not just your Amy Klobuchar's, uh, but also Bernie Sanders himself, is no, is the filibuster is great. We've used it a lot against Donald Trump. Um, there was just a partial birth abortion bill that might have passed. Um, also, look, the Senate has a Republican lean. Yep. So if you get rid of the filibuster, that might just empower Republicans because they have more power in the Senate. I might answer to that, that it wouldn't have as much of a Republican lean if you got rid of the filibuster and made D.C. and Puerto Rico states. Yep. But, but there is this way in which the party just does not care enough about democracy to take some incoming fire and like a bad David Brooks column or two to do something about it. And I think that's a... Long term, I think that's a much more immoral position than than people give credit for. Look, Donald Trump is a great danger to the political system, and he would like to be a strong man if he had some discipline and focus and strategy about how to do it. And everything people say about him is true. But as you just said, like American politics is at real risk of entering an extended legitimacy crisis where Donald Trump could win his next election by losing the popular vote, and then Ruth Bader Ginsburg ends up leaving a seat, and, and so on and so forth. And you just have this minoritarian path to power that keeps entrenching itself and passing more decisions to give itself more power. And it's one thing to be making that worse. That's quite bad. But if you have the capacity to fix it and you don't, and you don't prioritize fixing it, then in some level, you're complicit too. It's, it is it is insane. Like, I honestly do not want to hear another politician who does, another, who does not support getting rid of the filibuster talk to me about the importance of passing gun control laws. Mm-hmm. Because you need to get rid of the filibuster to pass gun control laws. And it, it, what like, Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg said in that debate. Yeah. And let's say Biden or, or Bernie change their position and they've decided they're against the filibuster. And so they get elected and they're going to go to the Senate and the Senate is going to be filled with people who say they don't want to get rid of the filibuster, right? <laughs> Bernie, if he's still there, people like Chris Coons and Amy Klobuchar, people like that are very passionate about this. And like, you got to test it, right? And I'd like, in that sense, I'd, I would put universal background checks on the floor, 90% support, everyone wants it, and the Republicans are going to filibuster it four months after losing a presidential election. And I have never been like a one-issue voter. And I'm obviously, our nominee is almost certainly going to be someone who doesn't agree with giving a filibuster. I'm definitely going to vote for them. I'm going to knock doors to them. I'm going to donate to them, all of that. But I just find the opposition to the filibuster to be such an infuriating position to have because you're acknowledging that we're going to do nothing about climate change until the planet melts. If we have to wait for eight to 10 Republicans to decide to do something about climate change, the Senate is going to be underwater. And... I think that the politics in Washington are being naive about the not just the substantive consequences of ignoring climate change in favor of a relatively absurd Senate tradition, but the political consequences of it. You see that somewhat in Bernie Sanders' support, right? I and mean, you see that among young people, the Sunrise Movement, is they are radicalized around this issue because they think this because they know this is going to affect them in their lives. And turning a blind eye on that out of procedural concerns is, to me, an insane political position for the Democrats to have. And just an insane moral position, I think, for anybody yeah. to have. I mean, this to me is we've been spending some time here critiquing, a, like, let's call it the 
establishment or mainstream yeah. of the Democratic Party. This is a critique I really do have of the emergent left, though, which is I think they are so focused on an ideological critique of the party that they don't have an institutional critique of what holds things back. So universal background checks being a good example, there is a deep belief on the left that if you can put forward bills that are popular and argue for them, you can pass them. And I think nothing shows the fallacy of that more clearly than the filibuster. And yet when I talk to people on the left and when you just like literally ask this question directly of Bernie Sanders, the answer is either it's not thought about that much or Bernie Sanders actively opposes getting rid of the of, of the filibuster. And just in general, I think a problem for Sanders has been that he and many in his coalition find a lot of just the work of politics grimy. Um, Sanders runs way behind in endorsements where you might expect. Uh, I think this might look like a very different primary if he had done the work to get endorsements from people like I don't know, Sherrod Brown and Tammy Baldwin. There are liberals who are important figures in the Democratic Party who agree with Bernie Sanders on a lot of issues, who when he had dominated in Iowa, New Hampshire and Nevada, might have been willing to come on board if, you know, the right conversations had been had. But instead, a lot of the left is simply furious at Elizabeth Warren at the time that we are talking. Um, she did not drop out before the Super Tuesday and endorse him, as opposed to wondering why that political work hadn't been happening. And so this is a real concern I have over the emergency left that it's got a theory of ideology. It's just it's got a theory of organizing, but it doesn't in the way that I think it believes it does have a theory of politics because it's turned off by a lot of the transactional nature of politics. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. It is a movement that has grown up in opposition to what the quote unquote democratic establishment, right? Like that was really the nature, the, the energy behind a lot of Sanders' 16 campaign was about the Democratic establishment. Now, that's tied in with Clintonism and Clinton and a, you know, a 20-year, 30-year dominance of Democrats by that family. But I don't think it's arguing necessarily always against the actual problems in the Democratic Party. Like it, like it is a view that anyone who doesn't of some like this, I'm I'm giving a stream extreme view, but that the reasons that Democrats don't agree with Bernie Sanders on things is they are corrupt. Yes. That they are being bought by money, right? That the, it is all part of a patronage system or they're all grifters and all of that. And the reasons why people do things and don't do things are very different than that. And some of it is politics. Some of it is, I am in this purple state. And if I was for the thing Bernie Sanders was for, I think I would lose. They could be right. They could be wrong. But that's the reason. It's not so that the health insurance industry will give me money. It's not to say that there aren't there isn't corruption in politics, but it's, it is actually, in my experience in the Democratic Party, the, not the driving reason why people don't do the things that Bernie Sanders wants them to do. So that's part one. Part two is you talk about Bernie Sanders not wanting to, basically essentially not wanting to quote unquote play the game of politics, right? And which you don't want to do if you think the game of politics is corrupt. One of the things I think it really hurt Sanders in terms of his momentum was his comments about Castro and the reaction to them. Now, I agree with every word Bernie Sanders said about Castro. It is almost verbatim what Barack Obama said about Castro just a few years earlier. And I believe much of the reaction among Democratic politicians was about the fact that they do not want Bernie Sanders to be the nominee. And so there was a lot of— And they fear he's a specific kind of vulnerability yes. with this kind of thing. Yeah. Like in the same way that Barack Obama is unbelievably cautious mm -hmm. on issues of race. Yeah. Like Democrats want Bernie Sanders to be very cautious on issues of socialism. Right. But the way Bernie Sanders in his campaign handled that fallout was to be defensive and to think basically that these people 
are cowards or calculating. And what I think, and as that was happening, what I thought about was, do you remember the flag pin controversy with Obama? Yes, I do. So in 2008, it was sort of, we were doing this debate and Obama did not, unlike most politicians. When I remember controversies of Obama, it sounds like I'm having boring dreams. Yeah, I know. I know. It's it's like 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 telling somebody about a dream. It's like, I sat at the diner, yeah. but they never brought in my coffee. <laughs> yeah, it's, right. yeah. it's like <laughs> and then I woke is, up in a cold sweat. <laughs> and sometimes it's hard to explain this to people who were not engaged, you know, were too young to be engaged in politics in 2008. This was a thing. But unlike many politicians after 9-11, Obama did not wear a flag pin most of the time. Like, I think he would wear it if he was meeting with the military or something like that. But traditionally, he does not put it on. And that was... It was like almost unintentional in his part. Like, he sort of thought, and this was a very Obama way of thinking, that... What a cheesy way to show your patriotism. Like, who is more of a patriot because they put a flag on, right? You have these people who are lying about the Iraq war who wear all the flag pins, right? And that doesn't mean that they're patriots. And it got acid in debate, a completely absurd debate hosted by George Stephanopoulos and Charlie Gibson. Why don't you wear a flag pin? And he his answer was not great. He was like, I am a patriot. I don't think there's a way to do it. But eventually, it became a huge controversy in part because there was a huge effort to make Barack Hussein Obama seem un-American and not believe in American values. And I remember sitting on that campaign thinking, Obama is right. Like, F this. Like, you you shouldn't have to wear a flag pin. He can convince people you have to wear a flag pin. And what did Obama do? He put on a flag pin. And I think sometimes you have to learn in politics to just eat shit, you know? And sometimes, like, like, there was a way in which Bernie could have said, been more like after the fallout happened, he could have even if he didn't agree with the reactions of, of Donna Shalala and some of the Florida members of Congress, he could have acknowledged their concerns in a way to move on to the next thing. And there's a stubbornness and a refusal to do so that comes, I think, from an idea when you believe that most people in your party are corrupt. They're corrupt cowards, and therefore their their concerns cannot be legitimate. Or I can't even pretend if I pre, even if I if even if I don't agree. With their concerns, I can pretend to acknowledge them or that I will too be corrupt. And that, like, that was the thing Obama had to learn was sometimes you have to play the game. That doesn't mean you do anything corrupt, but sometimes you just have to do, you have to have a strategic retreat on something so you can pass your bigger goals. Yeah. And one of the things that I think you get into here is the particular way that Bernie Sanders and his supporters talk past, let's call it the liberal wing of the Democratic Party, who they often consider even so to be, um, you know, unacceptably compromised, is that a lot of those folks, by virtue of not running in a state as blue as Vermont or just having been through different experiences and taken different lessons, have maybe started in a pretty similar place. Bernie Sanders' policy views are actually not particularly unusual for the Democratic Party. H.R. 676, which is a single-payer bill, was a very popular bill to co-sponsor in the House or a lot of Democrats um, in the Senate who will say that something like Medicare for all is their goal. But a lot of them, having either lived through the failure in 1994 of Clinton's bill or the Tea Party backlash around Obamacare, and particularly the backlash when I think it was three and a half million plans got canceled that were really shitty plans. But the idea, given how much of a crisis that was politically, that you would cancel 160 million just seems crazy to them, that they've moved down this road of like the outcome here is important enough to them that they will eat shit for it, right? They will come out with something compromised. They will come out with something. I mean, this is very much in many ways what Obamacare itself was, right? 
it happened in the shadow of the 94 failure. And it was an effort to include things like an individual mandate and other things that were supposed to like weaken opposition, which sort of half worked. It weakened opposition in industry and so on. And now that's looked at as as unacceptable. And there are a lot of parts of it that I personally dislike. But nevertheless, it was a re- it worked to actually pass a bill that usually had failed um, when, when tried in other ways. And this to me is the way that people are having trouble even conversing in this primary that there is fundamentally here a debate about how do you do politics and what do you have to do to win in politics and what constraints are binding in politics. And if I moderated some of these debates, um, I would like to have some debates actually on that issue. Like I would like to keep the candidates off of this question of my plan would be better if I had a magic wand and force them into this question of, of how do you do politics? Because something that's interesting now about the choice Democrats are confronted with is much more than Joe Biden has a theory of policy for the country, he has always had a deep theory of politics. He's somebody who likes the practice of legislative deal making. He's somebody who believes deeply in pluralism. It's why he'll talk about things like we need a Republican Party. I mean, he's somebody who really believes that when American politics is working, it has this deep transactional nature to it. And, and, and Bernie Sanders doesn't. But that's very much a dispute at the end of the day about which one of these approaches will get more done. Um, Biden believes he will get a more progressive agenda done than Bernie Sanders because he will get things done that Sanders will fail at. Sanders believes he won't fail, obviously. I wish we had better language for this. I think we miss this as a dimension of disagreement in American politics when it's actually the foundational one. Yeah, we, we yeah, that's exactly right that we don't really think enough about, like I said, we don't think about the how. We think that we spend all the time talking about the what. And I think that one of the challenges is we almost always talk about what presidents will do in the context of legislation and not enough in the context of all the other things that presidents do, right? The most, like, a much better in in, in informative debate is about what kind of person would be a treasury secretary for Biden versus Bernie, or what kind of person would be HHS secretary, or who would be in charge of OIRA, the regulatory office. Like that, That's one of the reasons I think Elizabeth Warren contributed a lot to this debate is more than any other candidate, she had thought about her theory of change in the context of what you do in a world where it's going to be hard to get things through. Like she obviously had a, a million plans that needed passing of legislation, but there was always a executive action component of this. And so a couple of things. One is well, I think we're overly legislatively focused just because every president, Obama passed more laws than Clinton and Bush combined. Clinton and two Bushes combined. And we spent all the time talking about the things he didn't pass, right? And even under the most optimistic scenario where you get rid of the filibuster, you're still going to be in a world where you're going to need either Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, or Doug Jones to vote with your vice president to get to 50. Yeah, and not only that, I mean, something that this is like my endless hobby. So you talk in your book about wishing people to be less presidentially yeah. focused. And I should say, I have the same wish. And here I am having this conversation yeah. with you where we've mentioned Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders' names a lot. Pod Save America does a lot of talking about presidential yeah. candidates. I don't know how many Democrats realize that Ron Wyden from Oregon will be, if Democrats take the Senate, the Senate finance chair. That will make him, with the exception maybe of Chuck Schumer, the single most powerful Democrat in the Senate on health care, on taxes, on basically anything that involves money in the Democratic agenda. I have a lot of respect for Ron Wyden. He's somebody I've covered for a long time. He's a very, I think, thoughtful and, and seasoned politician, but he's not like a revolutionary. And understanding Ron Wyden is going to be somebody you're going to have to deal with is just something that I think people are not 
thinking about in any clear way. But it's also a media problem that we don't know how to get people invested narrativizing this. Like something I've always been proud of is uh, in 08, the election we did in November um, at the American Prospect, and I was an editor there at that time, we ran a big, I ran a big Max Bacchus profile because like I knew he was going to really matter on this. And I think it's only gotten worse like as the media's gotten more competitive and Trump is like blotted out everything else in the sun. I feel like there's so little conversation and good reporting about like what are congressional Democrats thinking and seeing this is a system that has more dimensions than simply its presidential arm. Well, I mean, that like ultimately, like let's just look at Bernie Sanders and Medicare for all, right? Which is Ron Wyden's going to write that bill and Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House. And Nancy Pelosi has, has been at best dismissive of Medicare for all and seems annoyed when it gets brought up. And presidents have power to push things that may seem off the table before they get there, right? There's a lot of things, like the idea that Obama was going to push through Don't Ask, Don't Tell with a lot of those Democratic senators seemed insane before he became president and started pushing it. Like, there, it, people do, there is sort of this reversion to the policies of the president among the overwhelming majority of the caucus. There will be outliers, like Joe Manchin, for instance. But yeah, I think people don't understand either the role Congress plays in all the conversation about Obama spent so much time trying to court Republicans for health care, which was something directly related to Max Baucus's gang of eight theory of politics, right? Where he was going to, like, he wanted to do everything with Grassley. Like, he wanted Grassley sign off on it. So not that Obama was against that idea necessarily, but eventually his patience grew shorter with this before Baucus's did, which is eventually in the fall of 2009 when he went and gave that. He basically had to go give a joint session of Congress to tell Max Baucus and the rest of the Democrats, we're moving on our own here. Um, and like, so I don't think people recognize the, the, the limits to presidential power, which I think is people need to recognize because we, we do live in this, it's, it's all, do you like take something from the, the mid aughts, like the Green Lantern theory of politics or the great man or woman theory of history, or just our, the fact that we treat our president like the head of state instead of the head of government, all those things I think put undue expectations on what a president can and can't accomplish. And we don't spend enough time looking at the other people who do it and the other ways to get things done. The fact that, you know, what happens at the state level is not necessarily as important as what as our president is because the governor can't order the United States to invade a country. But in terms of like impacting people's lives, like the governor of California's ability to give people better health care and higher minimum wage and all those things in places where the president can is incredibly notable. Let me inhabit the other side of this debate for a minute, which is that by the same token that there are real constraints, there are also imagined constraints or within democratic uh, worlds, social financial, and to some degree even a little bit transactional or corrupted constraints. And something you talk about in your book is the influence of the consultant class on the Democratic Party and the ways in which that has become maligned. Could you expand on that a bit? Sure. I mean, I've been in politics for 20 years, off and on, basically. I, I guess I'm a podcaster now, but I'm technically still, it's a political podcast, so I guess I'm still in politics. You're, you're, but, I assure you, you're in yes. politics. But I, like, I was a political practitioner for much of my life, working on campaigns and in government. And the people who are consultants on campaigns now, many of whom are my friends, many are very smart, the sort of the media consultants, the chief strategists are the same people who are on campaigns when I started campaigns in the late 90s. 
And there has been this class of people who have, like the same people who advised, same consultants who advised Tom Daschle, I work for Tom Daschle, advised Harry Reid when he was the leader and advised Chuck Schumer is now that he's the Senate leader. And there's actual corruption and there's perception of corruption. Perception of corruption is a is much more f- frequent than actual corruption. And perception of corruption is very dangerous to Democrats because it's so cynicism and we need and cynical voters stay home and we need people to turn out. And for a long time, there was this model of politics, which was you do campaigns in the even years and you do corporate consulting in the off years. And the problem is the Democrats, the Democratic Party, starting with Obama now even more so, has become more oppositional to corporate power. And I know that's going to seem crazy to some people who on Bernie's campaign who think we're not, but Definitely the Clinton era Democratic Party was much biz- big business friendlier than the Obama era party. And my, in, in the party now is even less so as as sort of corporate America has rallied around Trump, right? We've become less friendly with Wall Street. We've become less friendly with uh, and even and with Bernie e- Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, I think, deserve a, a, lot a ton of, of a ton credit, of credit for uh, driving a ton that percent of credit. And in, in even in particular and small donor, the rise of small donor yes, democracy we, we, making that more possible. Yes, we become less dependent on Bernie Sanders has shown that you do not need to hold a single fundraiser to raise to be a massively well-funded camp, candidate. And I hope everyone takes that lesson going forward. But I, I just think there's a real damn the real dangerous situation where the where people are naturally cynical, where the people advising politicians who say they're fighting for expanded health care are also working for the insurance companies, right? And I think, and I talk in the book about the, the fact that the, Demo- the Democratic Party should think about a rule whereby if you want to campaign, consult for the party, you cannot consult for corporate interests for some period of time, much like in government, right? If you want to, under Obama's rules, if you want to work in the administration, you can't, you, ha- you can't have been a lobbyist for two years. You cannot work on anything. Although there were people who got there were a small handful of people who got some exceptions to it. And some of them were people who were lobbyists for good things, right? Yes, but some of them were there, not. there were some that I wish we had absolutely not done. But over the, the overwhelming rule was if you had lobbyist for the, – the good example is a guy who had been the lobbyist for the campaign for tobacco-free kids got an exception to work on tobacco issues at HHS. There were some that people who worked in the defense industry who got some to work for Bob Gates at the Pentagon, which was not a good idea. But – you couldn't be a lobbyist. You could, and if you, and you couldn't work on anything in which you had worked on for a few years. And once you left, you could not interact with the White House or the, or the administration in any way on any issue in which you had a financial interest, right? For two years. So the revolving door, like that, should also apply to political work as well. Because I think I'm not advocating purity tests, but I think I don't think it's good politics to say we can't do Medicare for all. For for political reasons, even if those political reasons are legitimate, but if the person advising you to do so is someone who has also worked for the opponents to Medicare for all, or currently working with opponents for Medicare for all, let me ask you what's going to be a bit of a delicate question. Joe Biden has emerged, reemerged as the front runner. Yep. Something striking about 2016, and I did reporting on this at the time, was there was not a big movement from inside the Obama administration for people to push that Joe Biden should be the successor. Hillary Clinton wrapped that up pretty quickly. Yep. And I talked to people then who, you know, would say, I love Joe Biden, but as president, it's a little bit hard for me to see, doesn't run meetings well, et cetera. Um, in 2020, there was also not a notable coalescing of the Obama people around Biden. You were in the Obama White House and you know a lot of these people. Can Joe Biden do the job? Would he be, would he be a good president? 
I have no doubt he could do the job. I have no doubt he would be a very good president. And I think we like obviously experienced. I think he would have. I think he would have a very good team. Like he he is like we talk a lot about people who you know like one of Trump's great failings is he hires all the wrong people. Biden has a history of actually hiring some of the best and smartest people in the Democratic Party at very young ages and keeping them in his orbit for a very long time. Like take Ron Klain, for instance, who worked for Biden in the Judiciary Committee at a very young age, was Biden's chief of staff, one of, I think, the most talented government officials in the entire party. People like Bruce Reed, who worked for Biden, Cynthia Hogan, who was his uh, counsel uh, for a long time. Like he like he would I think Biden would have would bring the best and the brightest into government, which I think is incredibly important. And Obama had that ability because there was this sort of JFK-like excitement about government again. And I think Biden would do that in a world of people really like Joe Biden. Like, there is a tremendous well of affection for him among people in democratic politics. And because of the urgency of taking on the task of undoing what Trump did. Like there feels this, there like there's an urgency to it that I think would bring people in. And the question of why people didn't rally around him right away is I think there are, there are a couple of reasons for it. One is I think a lot of people weren't sure he was the best person to take on Trump. You know, particularly Obama people who believe very strongly in a theory of change of politics that maybe the best person is not a former vice president who has been either a senator or vice president for the entire lives of anyone who's under the age of 45. Like, I'm 44. Joe Biden had been a senator for three years when I was born in his home state of Delaware, and he had been my senator over my vice president every day of my life until 2017. And so there are electability questions there, profile-wise, necessarily, right? And then I think some of us, and I certainly felt this way, which is we adore Joe Biden personally, just absolutely adore him, and have witnessed uphand him deal with tremendous tragedy in his life. And sort of the last thing anyone wanted was for this to go poorly for him. Like he had been this, I think, truly historically great and nationally beloved vice president. When he left, he was incredibly popular, um, pop more popular than Obama in a lot of polls. Um, and the idea that he could uh, end, that the last moment of his political career would be losing, you know, Finding out that he was coming in third in a hotel room in Iowa, New Hampshire was concerning. Like, from a personal level, you didn't want that for him in any way, shape, or form. And I, I really what like, regardless, I remember thinking after Iowa, New Hampshire, I was like, I just hope, not as a voter, not as a person thinking about who's the best person to beat Trump. I was like, I just hope whatever happens, Joe Biden wins South Carolina. So he has that moment. I didn't necessarily think that, expecting that that would then launch him through Super Tuesday to become this leader in the primary, but just because you care personally about him. And like all of us were involved in talking to each other in 2015 when he was thinking about running, you know, very late in the process against Hillary with a similar conversation. And that point was, we thought that he, it was probably too late to actually win, to actually be the nominee, what, that it was, he was interested in the one thing I heard when I talked to people not you specifically, no. but but people like you, yeah. <laughs> you you kind of people. Yes, us is yeah. that one of the the difficult things about being an Obama administration staffer to move from sort of Obama to Biden is that Obama has this very cool, calculated, technocratic style. Like reads every briefing book, knows the issues better than the policy people do. Um, you know, former 
law school, constitutional yeah. law professor, Harvard Law Review editor, et cetera. And that Biden, um, in part because he was there to balance Obama out on the ticket, has this more emotive, um, interpersonal, intuitive, like, I know this guy and I looked into his eyes and I can tell you that. And that it's just a very different model of running a White House. Um, I think in some ways, like the like the the intensity of how people run the White House just diminished in the age of Trump because like the comparison is Donald Trump, yeah. not Barack Obama. But I'm curious about the differences also in how they would run it because Biden is a very different personal oh, style they, than Obama. They are could not be more different. Obama is an intellectual politician. Like he thinks about politics in a very intellectual way. Which doesn't mean this is not to lead into the aloof, the or I think it's a false aloof critique because he loves to be out with people and he loves talking to people. But he thinks about he's just he's just a very intellectual human being and he thinks about things in a very linear, numeric way. Of every meeting is like three things: one, two, three, right? Point one, point two, point three. And Biden is much looser. Much, he's a gut politician. He he makes his decisions from his gut. He not that they, they're not informed or well thought out, but he just. It's a very different approach. Like a meeting with Biden and Obama is very different, right? Obama like runs a meeting. He makes sure everyone talks. He very explicitly ensures that the people who disagree with him get a chance to say it because uh, he wants that. And he like everything is a strategy with him. Like he will go into a meeting and he will argue the opposite of what his eventual decision will be to test his eventual decision against everyone. Biden is very different, right? He He comes in. He's it, like things are much more related to experiences he's had or people he's met on the on the trail or politicians he's worked with. He he projects it. It is really gut. And I think they would run different White Houses. I think that a Biden White House might be more I don't want to say staff driven, but I think Obama was sometimes like with. He could be. He could also be the best staffer, and I don't think Biden can necessarily be the best staffer. And so, Biden tends to pick one chief of staff that he who is very, very a very, very talented person and empowers them and lets them run a lot and is and sort of works with that person in a way that Obama was had a had a sort of a different approach. Not that Obama's chiefs of staffs were not quite talented, but Obama sort of worked with lots of different people. And so I think they would be different. And I also think that Biden would do, and this would be to his benefit, would spend more time like on the phone with other people in politics, talking to them about what they're hearing and saying. And he like he wants to talk to people and he would constantly be on the phone with people. And then that that informs his approach to things in a lot of ways. And sometimes that's great. And sometimes you're getting bad information from Lindsey Graham or whatever. But he like I think probably like the there was always this discussion about how Bill Clinton was up all night on the phone with members of Congress getting intel and things like that. And like, why didn't Obama do that? And he did it more than he got credit for. But I think he would see more of that with Biden as he would be constantly talking to people. And I think sometimes that is great because you get better intelligence. Sometimes it can be paralyzing um, in your decision making process. But Biden's a pretty good decision maker when the time comes. One other question sort of related to this sort of not. We've talked a bit about both here and when I mm. came on Positive yeah. View on, on, on my book, about polarization being this bigger structure that yeah. is enveloping a lot of different kinds of politicians. And it'll envelope Joe Biden, too, or Bernie Sanders, too. But something was distinct about Obama was that he was a black man named Barack Hussein Obama. And that created some currents in the form of opposition that he faced that were unique to him. 
How do you think it will be different for Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders to be president? Do you think there will be a noticeable difference in how the Republican Party responds to them? Do you think there will be things they could do that Obama shot away from or couldn't do? Just what do you think the difference is as the Democratic Party is now, it seems to have come back down to two white men? I re- this is a hard question because it's sort of a lot of what people misunderstood about the 2016 politics about the 2016 election was that the biggest case for optimism for Hillary Clinton was the view that Barack Obama represented the nadir of Democratic Party performance with white voters, Barack Obama 2012, and that Hillary Clinton would somehow do better with white voters. Like, even if there was this drop-off in African-American turnout, that would be made up by white people who could not vote for Obama because he was black. And that was a fundamental misunderstanding of politics because Hillary Clinton actually did worse than Obama. And enough so that she, we went from a massive electoral college victory to losing to the blue wall collapsing around us. And so it's not evident to me. I don't think the Republicans will be more, will, I don't think the Republicans will be more willing to cooperate with Bernie Sanders or, or Joe Biden than they were with Barack Obama. I think Fox News is going to have to make some real programming changes because a lot of what they started running post-2009 were things that were racial grievance oriented, right? Like all of a sudden, Fox News became very interested in stories about groups of African-American children beating up white kids on school buses, right? Like I think I don't think that becomes the thing. new Black Panthers, right? The new Black Panthers. Like if Bernie Sanders is president, like we're like Fox will only talk about socialists, right? Like the fear of socialism would be the thing that would drive it. I'm not sure what it'd be with Joe Biden. I don't think the Republican Party will act differently per se. I think that in some of the critiques of the Obama administration about things he did do or didn't do or how he approached that you hear a lot from the left are done from this racially blind perspective, I think, which doesn't acknowledge how the media and politics generally treats things from a person of color versus a white person, right? And we've had this conversation as it relates to gender in this election, the things that Bernie Sanders can get away with, Elizabeth Warren cannot, right? Or Joe Biden can, or Pete Buttigieg can get away with the name of Klobuchar cannot. But so maybe that there, like, there would be some freedom of it that a white politician could do some things that a non-white politician couldn't do. But I don't know exactly what that would be. But I think the idea that it was because Barack Obama was black, Republicans opposed him, ignores sort of what their political incentives are, and that they will be equally oppositional to. Like I believe, if Hillary Clinton had won and Republicans had taken the house, had kept, you know, Republicans still had the house, she would have been impeached earlier in the calendar in her presidency than. Donald Trump was, right? And that wasn't, Hillary Clinton is white and Barack Obama is black. And I think we should expect a Republican House to be equally rabid against a Democratic president going forward. I don't want to be dismissive of the role that race plays in this because it certainly it certainly does. And I guess I put this example is like we hit the, I think it was recently the 10-year anniversary of the beer summit. <laughs> yeah. I had to do uh I had to do some interviews about the for a NPR retrospective on an, the beer summit. An oral history. An of oral the beer history summit. of the beer summit was the thing that actually happened. It was on this American Life. Wait, really? Day. Yeah. Oh wow. And as it, and it was viewed at this time as this moment in politics that like this was the premise of a lot of these stories was that that was the moment when politics became radicalized on racial lines because Obama made that statement about the cop and Henry Louis Gates. And my take on that was that was not the moment. 
but like obviously Joe Biden or, or Bernie Sanders. That was the moment as opposed to a consequence of yes, the moments. Yes. But like Joe, but like if Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders got asked that question, they answered it with the exact same words that Barack Obama did. It's treated very differently. Mm-hmm. If Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders says, uh, we didn't build that, that's treated very differently than if Barack Obama said it, right? If civil unrest happens around Ferguson, that's treated very differently with Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden as president than it is if Barack Obama is, right? Both in expectations of the president to speak to the concerns of the protesters and the political consequences of it happening on their watch, right? And I think that 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 overlies everything. I don't know that that means Mitch McConnell treats them any differently, but there is a political context around it that I think is is often not thought about. And like, I think this is an element of politics that some on the populist DSA left don't think enough about is the racial context of these things, right? Where politics... Since the 80s, the Republican thing, basic message is Democrats want to take things away from hardworking white people and give them to people of color who don't work. And when you have an African-American president in the middle of a financial crisis with a housing crisis and all of that, that political context overhung everything in a way. Like the makers takers argument of, of Paul Ryan and the ilk is about Black people and Hispanic people and the president. And they there's a reason, I guess I'll put it this way. There's a reason that Newt Gingrich called Barack Obama the food stamp president. It's a good place to come to a close. So last question always here. Mm -hmm. What are three books that have influenced you that you would recommend? The book I've been rereading off and on for the last several months is Nixon Land by Rick Perlstein, which is a history of the run-up to the 1968 election and afterwards. And when you read that book in the context of what's happening now, it really makes you look back at some of the things that happened in the latter half of the Obama administration that created the context for Trump. And I think it's a really powerful book that is seems, I read it when it came out 10 years ago or whatever it was, but reading it now with Trump as president staring down this election really helps you understand how we got here and, and perhaps how we avoid staying here. So that's one. Two is... Um, The Known World, which is a book that came out maybe 15 years ago, which is a fictionalized account of slavery in America, won the Pulitzer Prize that I think is just, it's a piece of writing that just like knocked my socks off in every way. And then the third, maybe No Ordinary Time, Doris Kearns Goodwin's biography of the Roosevelt's and the New Deal, because I think it's a very smart, it it read, I read it. While Obama was president, it read true to what it's like to have to be president at a time of crisis and what you have to do to get things done that is relevant despite the 100-year difference in time. Like It's a very good account of, of how presidents get things done. Dan Pfeiffer, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Dan Pfeiffer for being here. Thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Jeffrey Geld for producing, to Roger Karma for researching The Ezra Klein Show as a Vox Media podcast production. 